0: Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Yakir Englender, your host today. As years pass and social media is becoming part of our lives, we can see the ways we humans speak, react, and behave to each other on social media. As an, peace, as an ex-peace activist in Jerusalem for 12 years, I am amazed by the strong language, shaming, and the lack of dialogue i see on social media too many times people share with me they prefer not to post their opinions from fear to be attacked the feeling is that you need to agree about a list of opinions and not to challenge them if you want to be one of us the book betraying dignity the toxic seduction of social media shaming and radicalization deals with this subject and many more. It is one of the most important books I read in the past years. Therefore, the dialogue with the author, Orit Kamir, will be divided to two episodes, each one on a different subject. In this episode, we will delve into the social media behavior. And in the next one, we we will focus on the term honor and glory in Christianity and Judaism and how both led to the creation of the term human dignity. Our guest, Orit Kamir, is founder and academic head of the Center for Human Dignity in Israel and has taught law and culture studies at universities in Israel, the United States, and Europe. Orit, welcome.
1: Hello, Yakir. Hmm.
0: Can you share with us, let's start with what made you to write this book?
1: That's a big question. I would say the 21st century made me write this book uh, because it's mm-hmm. so difficult to understand. Um, we created terminology in the 20th century that helped us make sense of things. We looked at a social phenomena and we could say whether it was progressive or, or conservative, whether it was motivated by right wing or left wing, uh, whether it was more democratic or more republican. And I feel that very often these uh, distinctions don't apply as well in the 21st century and that we need new tools. I'll, I'll give you an example. Thank you. <clears throat> so, something that I talk about a lot in the sixth chapter of um, the book is what's been defined by sociologists, the victimhood culture of universities in the US in the 21st century. Um, you look At universities, and you see students caring about very, very important things such as equality and uh, pluralism and minority rights. And these are things that we would normally connect with progressive culture, with left wing, with democratic rather than republican. But then you look at the way these students go about doing what they're doing, and you see repression of speech, you see political correctness that silences people that don't agree with them. And a lot of people ask themselves, wait a minute, is, is this still progressive or is this more conservative? Is this really left-wing or is this right-wing? Um, is this democratic or is this a Republican? And so I think we run into these things uh, more and more often, and I think we need a new pair of terms to use as a prism, as a point of view, and a lot of phenomena around us. And I offer honor and dignity to look at things through. And I think it allows us to see phenomena in a more nuanced way. Um, It's neither right or left. It's a little bit, um, it's, it's based on dignity, but the way it goes about things is honor oriented. And I know we'll have to explain both these terms, but this is what I'm trying to do in the book.
0: I love it. Thank you so much. So the next thing will be to understand better, what does it mean to have an honor and dignity cultures?
1: So dignity and honor are two ways of estimating a person's worth, a person's value, but they do so very differently. Now we all need to feel that we have value and we all need to feel that people around us have value And um, our own value and other people's value and worth are something major and critical in every every breath we take. Um, But dignity and honor mean very, very different things about the worth or value that we ascribe to ourselves and to others around us. So dignity is the relatively easier and, and simpler and shorter one of the two. Um, to believe that someone has dignity is to believe that all human beings have inherent worth that's absolute, that's universalist, that's there from the minute they're born to the minute they die, that's there no matter whether they're men or women, black or white, you know, tall or short, um, presidents or, um, you know, on the street, Uh Everybody's got that inherent worth simply because they're human, simply because they belong to the same family of human beings. And what, what belonging to the human family means is that we're all subjects, meaning that we're not objects. And as Kant put it several hundred years ago, if we're subjects, then we're priceless. What we have is worth that is not price. We don't measure ourselves um, in, in value numbers as what someone would pay for us. We measure, measure ourselves through this uh, absolute worth that doesn't change. Whereas objects, we can put a price tag on, right? They, they, they right. are worth $5 or 10 euro to whoever is willing to buy them, and that's all they're worth. We don't say that they have intrinsic, inherent worth in their own right we say that they're worth what they're worth to whoever is willing to pay for them. That's the difference mm-hmm. between price and um, dignity. So humans are subjects. That's why they all have dignity. The type of dignity they have is human and they all share in it. It's absolute. It's uh, a universal. So that's the idea of dignity in a nutshell, of course. And what comes out of this is human rights, right? Because if everybody has worth, then everybody has the same rights that derive from this worth. And this is something that the United Nations decided on in 1948. Um, on December, that year, um, nations of the world voted and decided to accept this as the underlying new principle of the world after World War II. And this started the era in which we hopefully still live, of human dignity and rights, right? And yes. that human dignity and rights includes, of course, equality between all human beings and the liberty of all human beings and that essence of their value. And I, I know I said it many times, but since um, hmm. people don't often talk yes. about dignity and value <laughs> and worth, I felt I should maybe repeat it three, four times, and uh, hopefully by now it's it's there um should I add anything to this here?
0: Um I wonder if you can I I, I just wonder if the decision uh, if you can say a little bit about the decision to um to create this declaration um it's I'm sure it's a result of the second world war and what happened there so and and I also wonder if you can share with us a little bit more about like how much or how we can judge or what does it mean to live after the Second World War in a dignity world?
1: Okay. Okay, so this idea that humans have this intrinsic value is ancient. Um, we, can, we can follow it back to the first century um, of the Common Era. We can find traces of it both in Judaism and in Christianity. And the the way people talked about it at the time was that we're all made in the image of God. But God created us in its image. And with the divine image came the divine value, the divine worth that we all have within us thanks to this um, intimacy with our creator. And yes. that was at that time when this was first... Um, thought of and, and written and preached, this was um, a, a revolution. This was an unbelievable new beginning in, in world history um, that no matter how lowly you are, no matter if you're a slave, if you're a woman, if you're poor, if you have no citizenship, you know, if you're thrown to the lions, you have the divine image in you and therefore you have worth. You're not just a slave. You're not worthless. You're not something that we can put a price on. There's also this glory in you. There's this um, divinity. There's this spark that no one can ever take away from you, and that's bigger than anything in the world. Now, over the centuries, and I'm, I'm making a huge leap here um, to contemporary times, um, there have been more secular versions of this, where instead of talking about the image of God, we talk about the image of humanity, our human image. And that's the source of value. And we all share that image equally. We all have that imprint. We're all human, right? We have we have this stamp of humanity in us. And this humanity carries with it the value that it holds. Now, what the United Nations um, expressed, I think, for the rest of the world right after World War II, was that perhaps the worst, unbearable, unspeakable outcome of this horrible, horrible, horrible war and the horrible um, regimes that, that brought on this war, of course, the Nazi and the fascist regimes, was that they their task was to undo this idea of dignity. I mean, they they deleted it as if it never existed, right? Some people had zero value. Some people had some value. Some people had a lot of value. But the idea that everybody has value, worth, intrinsic, inherent, either divine or human, that went out the window. And... The worst outcome of World War II was undermining our self-perception as human beings of being worthy of being valuable and I think it was huge of the United Nations to put their finger on it, and by the way, it took them three years and they sent letters out to philosophers and to thinkers throughout the world. Oh, wow. They got letters from India, from Africa, from South America, from North America, from everywhere in the world, asking how different cultures in the world view this idea of the human value, of worthiness. And they got the answers that every single culture around the world cherishes this idea and would like Mm -hmm. for it to become the basis of our universal Um, new world view after World War II. So what fascism Mm -hmm. and Nazism here uh, did was they betrayed human culture. It's not just Western culture. It's not just our civilization in the West. It's every known idea of humanity um, that they deviated from. And the idea was, to go back to the fundamental idea that we all share around the world, that human life has value. Black lives matter, red lives matter, yellow lives matter, white lives matter. And of course, I'm using these colors um, not because they're important, but because that's how uh, the world was historically divided according to colors. Um, And the bottom line is, all lives should matter. And this was the, the point where we decided after World War II to overcome Nazism and fascism in the most fundamental moral way and start over, and this time cherishing what needs to be cherished and adhering to it and embracing it and taking it seriously. Did that answer the question?
0: Oh, away. definitely, definitely, and be, and I think that before we're going to to move to to honor, I want I want to I want to ask you um, a question that maybe will summary all of what you said until now. So in um, 2004, I, uh, together with um, Rivka Elisha, you founded the Israeli Center for Human Dignity, and I wonder if you can take an example or two very shortly. Okay, where. A state like the state of Israel, who is who exists in a complicated place, can you take like an example or two of what are the ethical questions that as a as a society who wish to live according to human dignity, which kind of questions they need to ask itself, the state of Israel, that can in order to protect human dignity that exactly uh, it exists on the boundary that if you do that you cross the boundary of human dignity but if you choose in another way you still inside the boundaries of human dignity
1: well that's a difficult one Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) is it difficult because it's hard to define or because there are so many
1: It's difficult because it's always hard to talk about a different culture to people from a different culture. There's so many nuances, but I'll I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Um, So, yes, the the Israeli Center for Human Dignity has been in existence since 2004. Thank you for mentioning it. And uh, it's thanks to the Israeli basic law from 1992. Uh, In 1992, Israel decided to finally... Um, adopt the Universal uh, United Nations um, Declaration of Human Rights, and we established human dignity as the country's basic value, as have many other countries done before us and and after us. And the Israeli Center for Human Dignity tries to to bring this notion of dignity to as wide wide, populations as we possibly can. And of course, most interesting would be, you asked for two, so I'll mention two. One would be, of course, the military, the the Israeli defense force, and second would be the prison system. So um, what does it mean for soldiers to understand and internalize the idea of dignity? It means that they have to see themselves and every other human being in the world as brothers and sisters, right? As siblings who all share in the value of their humanity, right? They all have one humanity and they have to cherish it. So do they have to protect lives um, and maybe restrain people trying to do, to commit what's called terrorist acts? Of course they do. But can they treat these people that they're restraining, can they treat them, as objects? No, they can't. They have they have to see their subjectivity. They have to look at them as fellow human beings. And they have to act accordingly, which is extraordinarily difficult because we're human, right? So you're you're terrified, you're not sure what's happening, you want to do your job and protect lives that you have to protect. So the easiest thing is to treat someone as an object and, you know, restrain them, maybe permanently. Shoot. Right. Yes. But if, but if you remember that they're human beings, you can't take the easy way out. You have to work much harder. And it's a very difficult thing to tell people because you are telling them to risk their lives, right? If you don't just shoot someone, then you're putting yourself at risk. But if you want to take human dignity seriously, um, this is this is an outcome, right? If we're really devoted to human dignity, that's what it means. And if you look at a prison system and you work with not just the inmates, but people who oversee them, then they have to constantly remember that these people in there are human beings and it makes their life very, very difficult Hmm. because they, they too feel endangered. They, they're threatened, they're afraid, and they want to use their power to do what they think is most efficient. But right. they have to remember constantly, and I mean constantly, 24-7, it's a hard job. They have to remember that efficiency doesn't always acknowledge the dignity of the inmates. And and they must, because that's the meaning of being devoted to human dignity.
0: Wow, thank you so much. Yes, I, I just imagine, uh, not imagine, because we, we, we both served... Um, I I just think about the distinction when you push the same this um you push the same gun but you if you need to push it with dignity or if you push it without dignity and also the the pay that you the price that you pay because when you shoot someone um and you think about them as people with full dignity the chance that you will suffer from post trauma after that is is much higher Um, Because you care, you need to to steal to push the, you know, to shoot um, sometimes, but also at the same time, you know this, you shoot a brother.
1: Absolutely. And uh, we believe that once a society decides to legislate human dignity as its basic value, it must take it seriously. And once you take it seriously, you hurt. And hopefully, wanting to avoid this pain you will try to implement policies that um, that take this into serious consideration. That's, that's exactly the goal.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So let's move now to the other side of the coin. So if we have dignity on one side, now let's go to honor. So what honor culture is?
1: Okay. So um, both when I talk about dignity and when I talk about honor, I'm, I'm not throwing in names, but obviously I'm, I'm relying on the works of lots and lots of uh, scholars who've um, looked at, at both these terms um, many many years before me and have written books and libraries about them um, my um, the point that I make in the book is is the comparison between the two and between the two cultures that they create and where we are now but This is just to say that when I talk about honor, as when I talked about dignity, um, none of it is originally mine. I'm I'm repeating things that have been written by many scholars previously. So an honor culture is is a culture that uses honor as its basic value to give people worth. And this And this method of giving people worth worth is very different from dignity because it's a lot more complicated. It refers to a person's place within the hierarchy of his or her social group, and a person's honor is equivalent to the status that person has managed to acquire for him or herself within the group. Now, in order to acquire status and honor, you need – To follow the code of honor of that group and the better that you follow the code of honor the more honor and status you gain okay so it if in a society the the um, one of the tenets of of an honor code is you have to be a warrior and show bravery and um, fight the enemy then If you manage to be a soldier, participate in a battle, fight the enemy and show bravery, then you receive a lot of honor and a lot of status and you're ranked high within the hierarchy of your group. In a different society, it might be if you're a good student and if you study hard and show your Mm -hmm. um, ability and outsmart your teachers – then you get honor and status, then in this society, this is the honor code that you have to adhere to. And this is how you get honor and status. In a third society, it might be, um, do business make a lot of money, and then you'll get a lot of honor, right? A capitalist way of of understanding honor would be um, the, the better you are at business and the more money you make, Uh, the more honor and status you receive and the further up in the hierarchy you are. Now, in this way of thinking about people's worth and value, um, the value is not inherent and it's not identical. People are not equal in their worth. They have as much worth as they created for themselves. And Mm -hmm. this has been the way that most societies throughout history uh, all over the world used to give people a sense of worth and to have people view the worth of each other. And I will add that uh, when anthropologists studied honor societies, honor-based societies, societies in which honor is the basic value, they usually use honor and shame, because honor is the positive, whereas shame is the negative. So you want to achieve as much honor as you can, which means that you want to have as little shame as possible. Um, and going back to the three examples I gave of honor societies, in an honor society where you have to show bravery as a warrior, if you are a coward and you stay away from battle and you don't show your bravery, you gain shame. Gaining shame means losing status losing status means being at the bottom of the social hierarchy and the same in a society where you have to be a good student, if you're a bad student, or if you have to make a lot of money and you don't make money, right? So when you gain shame, what that means is that you lose status within the hierarchy. And what people are constantly doing is competing against each other for their relative status. That's what they have. That's what, what's important to them. And this is how they value themselves and everyone around them. They they try to get as much as they can, knowing that it's, it's always necessarily at the expense of everybody else around them, because this is a zero-sum game, right? So the more you have, the less there is for others. And so in any... Society where there is rank, the rank tells you how much honor a person has, right? So, of course, a yes. professor is above a student. That's easy. And within any like um, military group or police or any organization that has hierarchy, the rank tells you who is above whom. And you know that they had to work hard within the honor code and and show their distinction according to the rules of honor in order to receive the status that they have within the hierarchy. Now, if you remember that dignity is about everybody having the exact same inherent value, you see that these are very, very distinct ways Mm -hmm. of um, feeling our own worth and giving other people worth, And you might even say that they're complete opposites, right? They're 180 degrees different from each other.
0: So in a dignity, just to make it clear, so in a dignity culture, you can still be a student and a professor, but probably the feeling, or what does it mean to be a student or professor, or a professor who published four books compared to a doctor who published only the... their PhD, um, the in both society, we can have these differences, but the meaning of these differences will be different. Is it true?
1: Absolutely. It's about how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about everyone else around us. In an honor society, if I only published one book and you published four, then yes. I feel inferior to you and I am inferior to you. And you are right to feel um that you're much better than I am. Um, And everybody else will look at us that way and they will know that you're supreme and I am inferior, period. That's how it is. In a dignity-based world, we have the exact same value, period. End of story. I am a person with human dignity who's written but one book and you're a person with human dignity who's written four books, right? And Mm -hmm. we're equals in our human dignity, but we're different in in the books that we published. It's as simple as that, so um I think every one of us can can get the sense of what it must feel to be in either one of these cultures. Now, let me go just one step further and say that I think we all lived live in societies that have mixed values we we all have both right we we both uh we all um um estimate someone who's published four books more than someone who's published one, although I'd like to think that we also look to see the value of the book in its own right and see whether it's a good (laughs) book or not, right? It's not just how many books, but also the quality of the writing. But we also want to feel that everybody's got some basic human dignity, and this this is the important point, I think. When we adopt the idea of dignity, then even in a ruthless uh, competition for honor, we don't allow hurting each other's human dignity. That's out of the question, right? We can't do that because our human dignity gives everyone human rights. So you can't humiliate someone by making them feel less worthy than other human beings right. um, in a, in a, in an honor-based society where we don't have this dignity um, um, addition, then in, in our competition for honor against each other, we can devastate each other. There is no limit, right? There is no red line. There is no bottom. There is no floor. You can step on each other all the way uh, in order to promote yourself,
0: in a way, you have to do... It. I I'm just want to take... I, I love this example that we don't go, you know, to the old time that doesn't exist. We speak about um, our listeners. Many of them are in the academy. And I think about, like, a conference and then someone giving, like, presentation. And here come the moment of asking the questions and how do you ask the question and why do you ask the question and do you ask the question because you really want to get more knowledge and because you're excited for these dialogue or you ask the question in order to show the presenter to the speaker that maybe they are not, they are not good enough. Um, and then it, beca- can, can you help us with this example? I, I love it. I think many of us will understand it.
1: Right. So, um, you know, honor has fallen out of grace. It's, uh Sadly, it's it's a concept that's not used anymore because people feel that it's uh, politically incorrect because it was associated. It is still associated in some people's minds with certain cultures and not others. Okay, so um, if it,
0: I, I'm not sure that uh, can you can can you elaborate more about what is- okay mean? I'll
1: be I'll be more um, <laughs>
0: yes 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 <laughs> <less subtle>.
1: um, <laughs> thank you okay so. Honor killings happen in certain cultures and not in others, right? And Mm -hmm. um, we are all against honor killings. We think it's a bad idea to kill someone because they stained the family honor. So talking about honor cultures became associated with talking about these cultures in which there is honor killing, okay? And that's why it became thought of as um, looking down on these cultures as compared with others. Hmm. And that is, it's really sad because honor is something that we need to understand because it is not relevant only to certain cultures and not others. It's relevant to all cultures. And just as you rightly pointed out in academy, (laughs) many, many departments have honor cultures, right? And you know, the minute you presented a paper that the honor, the the honor struggle, the, the dual or if you want, the the blood feud starts now, right? Because people are going to ask questions, not in order to better understand what you said, but to show that they're smarter than you, that they've read more than you, that they can tear your argument apart and leave you there helpless, right? So by doing this, they start an honor fight, right? They want to show that they are better than you and therefore they're above you. They get more status. This is the zero-sum competition, in which they want to show their distinction and and win over so that you lose and they place themselves higher than you in the hierarchy. Now, this happens in a lot of departments, as we know. In some departments, there is no reference to human dignity, which means that they can go as far as they like, right? They can show you completely worthless. They can tear you apart. They can leave you there naked and bleeding on the floor. Um, You know, everybody else just needing to to get an ambulance to get you back on your feet. This is pure honor with no reference to dignity. Whereas if you want to play, if you just want to be within a dignity-based world, then you don't use this opportunity to outshine the person who's just presented. You really want to ask them questions that further... Um, help understanding the theory, both to yourself and to others. And if you want to have an honor culture that that still um, um, respects dignity, then okay, then you can try to outshine the speaker, but you only go so far. You don't Mm -hmm. try to show them as completely worthless, and you don't leave them bleeding on the floor. Well, this, thank this is you. A great example. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. So I want to move back to 1948. In 1948, we have the Declaration of Human Dignity, right? Um, and it's come after the second um, the Second World War. And can you, in, in a very short time, um, because we, I, I'm sure we can go deep in inside that. But what happened in the Second War War the Second World War? that we as humans and nations, we understood that we must create a declaration of human dignity. And because this is going to lead us to the results or to the meeting between the clash between honor and dignity. And and maybe we will look on the Second World War just from the Jewish perspective. So we have the Nazism, we have the Jewish people, Can you share with us from honor culture, what exactly is the war of Nazism against Jews, or against Judaism, maybe? Um, And how human dignity should create boundary for that?
1: Right. And then I still have to to answer the question that you posed that I haven't answered yet, which is about contemporary
0: Uh, Yes, because this is, this will lead us, yes, exactly, because this, I think, will lead us to understand how, what's the struggle with, with social media. Um, but yes, so can you, can you just go back to the, to, to this, um, specific time in history where we try to bring human dignity and to say no more. Um, okay. um, honor society in a way.
1: Okay, so let's go back to what you asked. Uh, okay, so Jews like gypsies in Europe were um, minority groups in, in all European countries, right? All European countries had Jews and gypsies. They had other minorities but these two minorities were special in, in that they did not have their own um, locality. They, they didn't have their own land, uh, a part of the world that was theirs. They wandered. And um, according to European honor structures, both Jews and Gypsies were outside the the order of honor. They had no honor. They were honorless. Okay,
0: so they cannot even gain honor.
1: So within the traditional honor systems of Europe, they could not possibly gain honor. Just as uh, non animals can't gain honor, <laughs> women can't gain honor. Uh, it's a long story. We won't get into that. Um, it, honor is a, is a is a game played by able-bodied um, and relatively well-off men. Um, right. And they're the only ones who can play the game, who can gain honor. And then once they have honor, they have to constantly fight to keep it. But they can keep other people who are honorless, like women and children, and sort of give them some of their own honor, right? That, that's how a man's honor becomes his family's honor. But the people within that family or the clan or the tribe, they don't own the honor. They just get to use the honor of, um, of the alpha man at the top of the family or tribe, right? So Jews um, couldn't play in the game. They couldn't have honor. And they couldn't become families. I mean, they could be protected by kings. So kings had honor, and kings had Jews that they protected and shed some of their own honor on. And then these Jews were not to be touched, right? Because they they if you
0: they're part the, of the honor of the king,
1: right? Right. If you touch okay. the Jew that belonged to the king, then you threatened Actually the king's honor, and you him. got in trouble with the king, right? So, right.
0: Right. So you right. didn't
1: want to get into that war. Uh, but otherwise, Jews and gypsies were outside the honor system. And what happened during the emancipation, what happened during, since the Enlightenment, was that um, liberal thinking, dignity-based thinking, uh, fought against this way of viewing in, in certain people. And it fought against the tribalism. And it fought to see every individual viewed as a human being. As a citizen of a state, and as a human being that bears rights in his or her own rights, and this was this was happening big time, since uh, well, since the 19th century, but but mostly in the 20th century, and Jews and Gypsies and foreigners and Africans and uh, Asians and people who were previously not considered part of the honor system were now gaining uh, human. Um standing as individual human beings, and we're becoming citizens, and we're allowed to come into the societies of European states. Now, <laughs> every time something like this happens, there's always people pushing back against it, right? There's backlash, there's people fighting to ward this off, and this is what's called conservatism and, uh, and backlash. And This started happening as soon as minorities gained rights. And what Nazism did um, and and, uh, fascism did was fight back to restore the honor system as it was before emancipation, before liberalism, before uh, enlightenment, right? And so within these worldviews, if you were a minority – you were no. You were stripped of your um, social rights, or civil rights, or citizenship, and from your right to be a member of the group. So the, these um, these cultures reestablished the honor system and took it to the extreme, and uh, it was devoid of any reference to dignity, and therefore anybody who was a minority lost all the. Advances made over the last fifty years before Nazism and and, um, um, fascism, and people were once again restored to being outsiders to the honor system. Now, once you're an outsider to the honor system, anything can be done to you because Mm -hmm. you have zero worth, right? You have no standing, nothing, and
0: that's what. So, in a way, so can can I say? Yes, yes. So in a way, when Jews were invited, when they gained dignity, right, when they were invited to the dignity um, or after the French Revolution um, and the Enlightenment. So in a way, the voices of dignity rising up. Right. And therefore, Jews, as an example, they are now part of that dignity society, of course. But actually, because we still have honor inside Europe, so in a way Jews start by being invited to dignity dialogue, they also start gaining honor. And then the forces who try to fight against all the idea of dignity and they want to keep nationalism in an honorable way, they see the Jews who before were totally outside of the game of honor, and now they are part of both dignity and honor. And therefore, we want to take them out from honor because they make the people who really have honor to right. be uh, dirty because they come to our game and they are, in a way, not, have never been invited.
1: Right. And
0: therefore, we declare a war against them.
1: Right. So, did Germany- I right? In Germany, there was aristocracy that, after World War One, lost a lot of power, lost a lot of land, lost a lot of uh, standing. And then there were Jews in Germany uh, who were gaining power because they were allowed into society, and they were um, doctors and lawyers and and had a lot of and, and owned newspapers and were journalists and had banks, and so they were gaining honor within the German society and the, the aristocracy for one was feeling that this is outrageous because they're losing honor. And these outsiders who were never allowed to have any honor are now gaining more honor than those who are entitled by right to have honor the aristocracy. And what Nazism right. managed to do was, um, not merely please the aristocracy there, there are never many aristocrats, but what they did was, um, uh, we know that many Germans after world war one, uh, were impoverished because of the penalty, um, you know, the Versailles treaty having to pay, especially France and other parts of the world pay huge sums of money. So many Germans were impoverished and they felt that they were pushed down in the hierarchy of honor and all these outsiders who don't belong here in the first place, um, sometimes some of them are earning more honor than we are. And that was unbearable. So it wasn't just the aristocracy. It was all Germans who felt threatened by minority groups and Jews in particular, gaining um, power and status. And what Nazism did, it gave, it gave honor to all Germans and only to Germans. And anybody who wasn't German could not have any honor. So, for a lot of Germans who were impoverished, right? Who felt that they had lost everything. This was a huge relief to finally be not just within the game again, but above everybody else who was kicked down and out.
0: Thank you. So now that we understand that, I want to come back to to the present and to what's happening after the declaration of human rights. And also in your book, you are using um, Erich Fromm to understand better the complications of living with dignity.
1: Please. Okay, okay. So um, you're taking me to Erich Fromm, and I'm very, I'm very happy to um, to give him the the credit. Um, so when you asked me why I wrote the book, and I said there were lots and lots of answers. One answer would be. That a few years ago, five, six, seven, I can't recall. I reread one of Eric Frum's books. I don't remember what it was that brought me back to it, but I read uh, Escape from Freedom again. And the minute I finished reading it, I just turned it over and started reading it a second time because it was it was mind-blowing. It was wow. Uh, I couldn't believe that I'd forgotten um, how smart and good and and insightful it was. And as I read it, I felt okay. He wrote this in 1941. It's as it's as accurate to our own uh, time as it was then. I need to bring it back to life. I need to call attention to it, and I need to unite it with the distinction between honor and dignity. And um, what I try to do in this book, in my book, in betraying dignity, is is rewrite um, from with the help of the terms honor and dignity, which he did not use. So let me just very quickly say what he does. Yes. So Eric Fromm is a German Jew. Uh, He's a psychoanalyst. And uh, he was smart and lucky enough to leave Germany just in time, just as World War II is about to erupt. And he crosses the Atlantic. Um, he, He goes to the United States and then to Mexico. And he sits there as Europe is is in flames, as Germany is um, turning into a monster, as Germany is, is murdering uh, his family, his community, everybody he grew up with. Uh, this is a very difficult moment for him. So he looks at his own culture. He's a German Jew. Um, and he looks at the culture and he asks himself, what the hell went wrong? What happened? How, how did this come to be? And his explanation, I think, is ingenious. He says, okay, for centuries and centuries, we Europeans fought for liberty. We fought against feudalism. We fought against the structures, the regimes, the ancient regimes uh, of kings and churches and everything that kept us in place and tied us down, and it was finally since the French Revolution, right, uh, seventeen eighty nine, so the very end of the eighteenth century, that we started appropriating our freedom. We started being free from the slavery of feudalism and uh, monarchism and and churches and so forth. And then what happened was that we were left with our negative freedom, negative freedom meaning uh, the freedom from slavery, from everything that kept us down. And we did not do the next step that we had to do, which was create our positive freedom. So that means create ourselves as full individuals um, who uh, manifest their selves through their creation, through their love, through their industries, through their work. That Had we done that, that would have given us meaning. It would have given us a sense of um, value to live for, but we didn't do that. And since we only had the freedom from, from slavery, but not the freedom to be unique, um, um, full fledged individuals, what happened was that we all got scared. We became afraid of our freedom because we experienced it as loneliness, as alienation, as worthlessness. We were no longer united under a king and under a church and under the feudal system, which told us who we were and what we had to do and who to marry and where to go to work and, you know, told us gave meaning to every moment of our lives. We lost that. Right. We didn't create the alternative. And so now we turned back from our freedom and we tried to create um, systems that would give us meaning outside of ourselves. And what happened was that we had created this monstrosity. We created fascism and we created Nazism as replacements for feudalism. And for monarchies, right? And for churches. But these monsters were a hundred times more oppressive and more murderous than what we had before. And this is the price that we're paying. Now, interestingly, interestingly, as Eric Fromm is sitting across the Atlantic from Europe, looking at the flames, hearing the horrors that are happening there, um, he also looked at the liberal world the liberal democracies so at the united states where he was now safe and alive and he said okay people here are also afraid of their freedom they're not escaping to fascism thank god they're not escaping to nazism so they're not becoming murderous but what they're doing is they're embracing consumerism and they're fleeing into consumerism. They're escaping liberty into this mode of life where they work, 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 earn, 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 and spend, spend, spend. And then they try to have more than their neighbors, and that becomes the meaning of their lives. They, they listen um, um, to the radio all day, telling them that they have to buy more and to possess more and to own more and to show everyone that they have more than everybody else. And this is what they do instead of creating their real, authentic, positive freedom. So when in 1941, he publishes this book, which at that time became a huge bestseller and for about 20, 30 more years was very, very popular. Um, and then as, as most good books, you know, became forgotten, um, what he sees is that the free, the fear of freedom, the feeling of loneliness and alienation, pushed people in the first half of the 20th century either to totalitarianism, to crazy murderous um, states, or to consumerism, in which they lose themselves in the rat race and allow. The, the conglomerates and, and the big companies seduce them into working and shopping, shopping and working, and they disappear in that.
0: Which tell us, in a way, how we are afraid from being alone or, okay. or to just to feel ourselves when we gain dignity. Um, in a way, it's also explain us that this fear is so is so powerful that many of us will go back even to honor narrative and culture in order not to feel the pain of being with a question signal with a okay. with a exactly. with a silent
1: okay so so now we're closing the circle we're going back to the questions yes. that you asked me previously about yes. about where we are now right mm-hmm. so let me try to tie together all the Threads that we uh, we untangled here. Um, so the thread of um, what, what's happening today in the world in the 21st century, what's happening in the um, in the internet world in in social
0: um, um, social media and
1: social media. Thank you. I've been talking a lot. <laughs> and Eric From. So yes. uh, when I read his book, I I thought. Okay, what he said about 1941 is pretty much true for, um, it, was, it must have been 2010, when I read it, 2012, something like that, except I don't want to talk about it in terms of um, liberty and oppression, positive liberty and negative liberty. I want to talk about this in terms of dignity and honor. Why? Because... The United Nations decided after World War II that it's dignity that we have to cherish, that that is the fundamental value that we all have to adopt and adhere to if we want to prevent the horrors of fascism and Nazism, right? And we all accepted it, and we accepted, and we we want this to be the era of human dignity and rights. So dignity needs to be the term that we use to look at ourselves, and. The opposite value term of dignity is honor. So I think we need to look at it as honor and dignity. And once we do this, we see that we can tell um, Eric Fromm's story, the narrative that he tells in in terms of oppression and freedom. We can easily uh, tell in terms of honor and dignity because the feudal world, the world of antiquity, and then the middle ages, that was a world of honor. A feudal system is a system of honor, the monarchy is a system of honor, and the French Revolution, everything that came after that, was the beginning of establishing human dignity as the basic value, even if they called it liberty and equality, and of course um, fraternity, friendship, um, those are major components of what we today call human dignity. And if we look further and look after World War II and look at, at the 21st century, and this, <laughs> this is the argument of my book. This is what I kind of claim in this book, yes. called Betraying Dignity, is that once again, after World War II, we established dignity, but we got frightened. We got frightened of what we experienced as its loneliness, As It's uh, the alienation because dignity means that each one of us is a full individual. And it is as such that we need to grow and develop ourselves and become someone and make meaning for ourselves, make our lives meaningful. And that is scary. That is a task that many of us are frightened of. And so once again, we flee we we run away we run away into totalitarianism so we have in the 21st century we have absolutist parties all over the world rise again we even have nazi parties but we certainly have extreme right-wing parties getting stronger and stronger and we've seen them almost um Taking the presidency of, of major countries in Europe, even France, which is almost beyond belief. So we see that kind of totalitarianism rise again. Mm-hmm. And what we see at the same time is new versions of what Eric Fromm saw as the consumerism of 1941. And this is interesting because what we have today is a lot more sophisticated than the way of fleeing honor um, into capitalism and consumerism and showing off your property. What we have today, some of it and much of it happens in in the social media. It happens in, in a world that's not material. It supposedly doesn't even physically exist, and yet it becomes a place in which people compete for honor. And they do so because the social media was taken over by, by um, conglomerates that have economic interests. And they created a system in which we are enticed, we are seduced, we are invited to participate and feel as if we are being um, dignified individuals. But what, in fact, we're doing is we're being objects for these conglomerates to make money through. Okay, so what these Facebook, right, and all the other uh, Twitter, all all the other um, social media um, so-called big companies they don't value us as individuals to them. We're not subjects to them. We're members in a big collection. Uh, We're like stamps in a stamp collection. If anybody still remembers that people used to collect stamps and the, the, the value of the stamp collection is not because each of the values has a lot of um, worth. It's because it's bigger than any other. Okay. What, what these companies seek is to have as many members as possible. And therefore, they encourage us to have a lot of followers. And and they make us feel good about ourselves if we get a lot of likes and retweets and all these things that show that we're important. But we're only important to them and eventually to us and to people around us, not because what we say is worthy, not because it's authentic, not because it's deep and meaningful and good and beautiful. It's only because a lot of people were willing to follow. A lot of people were willing to like, which is exactly the idea of honor. It's, it's numerical. It's not inherent. It's not that something is good in its own right it's it only becomes good when it becomes more than someone else so if i have more likes or more retweets than you then i become more worthy than you i become more important than you i gain status and i gain honor it's not dignity i gain it's honor now you might say okay so you gain honor but what's the harm in that so you get a lot of likes you feel good about yourself you go to sleep feeling like you're somebody in the world. But the other side of that is ways that we interact in social media that offends our human dignity, such as shaming. Shaming in the social media has become a huge problem, and we all know it. But not thinking back at the past, we think that it's a new phenomena, that it's something that we invented together with the social media. But it isn't. Shaming is exactly what honor societies do as a part of gaining honor by stepping on someone else, right? It's a way of of buying yourself more honor through taking it away from someone else. This is what shaming is. And we talked about people shaming each other in faculty presentations of papers. And we said that sometimes You can shame someone without stepping on their dignity, right? Offending their dignity. But sometimes you do offend their dignity. And we know very well that, that the um, shaming in, in social media can be so ruthless. So it can be so devastating that people commit suicide because they feel that their worth has been taken away, that they're worthless, that they can no longer go on living. And This type of shaming is just the most obvious, brutal way in which um, social media and and our um, digital life um, shows the danger and the harm of honor. So what I try to do in the book is follow as many uh, social phenomena of contemporary time as I can and show where unknowingly. We, we don't do this uh, on purpose. We don't do it because we want to choose honor over dignity. It's not because we want to undermine dignity and throw it away. It's because we're unaware. We're unaware of honor. We don't know much about honor because it's been proclaimed as you know, politically incorrect. And we didn't bother to learn much about dignity. So we get seduced into a lot of things in the contemporary era and find ourselves giving up our own dignity and letting go of it and not fighting for it and playing into honor-based systems that take us back to the brutality that we decided to leave behind and that we know is dangerous as and we know can lead us to very dangerous and dark places. So the argument is that post-World War II, we declared the age of dignity. But in the 21st century, honor is having a huge comeback. And we are not prepared for it. We don't know to see it. And so we're buying into it. We're playing into it. And many of us feel it. We have a very um, uneasy feeling about things that are happening around us. And we think that there's something wrong there, but we don't know how to put our finger on it. So what the book is offering is... Uh, to help us to master the the language of honor and to master the language of dignity so that when we see a social phenomena or an individual phenomena, when we look at our own lives and everything that's happening around us, political, cultural, social, everything, we have both these perspectives to use and that we can see uh, when we're still um, Keeping up with dignity and where we're, um, we're letting honor um, offend dignity.
0: It's fascinating. We need to 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 end soon, but I'm just um, I, I'm thinking. <laughs> my head is now running to so many places. I think about um, how, for example, in Facebook, um, they limited the numbers of your friends to five thousand. And after that, you cannot have any more friends, but then you have the possibility to become a public figure. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a way, it it forces you to see yourself not anymore as a person which is private and you have friends or because of your work or something like that. Many people, you know, are friends with you, which is another question of what does it mean to have friends if you have above 5,000 people. But also the question of how do you see yourself because you are limited; it's not your choice. Or, for example, I remember the day that I'm running for my work, um, a small um, um, a group of um, around a subject that we all um, share. And then when you reply to messages of people in public, um, at one moment you become you become a super host, and as a super host, you have um, a unique. Um, Title um, symbol next to your name. Also, you are invited by Facebook to some um, unique workshops that you can apply to. Can and I'm aristocracy. just. Thinking... Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And it's actually, it looks very much like a little, um, it's very aristocrat, aristocratic. Um, but I also think about the shaming part um, and the power of the people and i will take maybe an ex- um, i will take example from again from things that i have seen that let's say there is a person who is dating according to some people improperly and they decided to shame this person publicly without taking them it it's prevent them to to do Maybe painful thing, maybe to go to the police if it's needed, or to take them, to this person, to the court, because now you can shame the person next to all their friends, and to make them seriously at one point to disappear from this area, which means that you lost a lot of connection, etc., etc. And we become the police, we become the court, and we do the work. Um,
1: so I I have to add this one sentence. Please, uh, please, yes. I know we have to finish but uh, what you said is extremely important because dignity goes hand in hand with the rule of law, right? Because we can only protect dignity if we have the presumption of innocence, if we have due process. Um, if we have minimal no. restrictions no. of our liberty, if we have pr- proportionality between crime and punishment, no. right? If we and due process means that there is an objective uh, no. official out there who studied how to do this, and they they hear both sides no. and they hopefully reach the truth, and that they decide no. whether no. we did or didn't do what we're being accused of, and how serious it is, and what the penalty should be. So in order to to um, protect our dignity, we must have the rule of law. But shaming, as you rightly said, has become an alternative to the rule of law. We no longer go to the rule of law and we stop believing in the presumption of innocence and in due process. And now we just take the law into our own hands as is done in honor-based societies. And we use shaming with no qualification, right? And there's objectivity is out the window Uh, proof is out the window and sometimes we punish a person who's done horrible things but we can sometimes make a mistake and punish someone who doesn't deserve it or we can over punish someone and take away all their um, status and honor and bring them to the feeling of worthlessness and committing suicide and it's a very serious thing that we have to we have to see the pros and cons. We have to see dignity and honor, how they pull in, in opposite directions and where we want to find the, the sane um, middle.
0: So, Rit Kamir, um, the writer of Betraying Dignity, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you very, very much, Yekil. I really appreciate this.